Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I'm Betsy Kaplan. In January, the Colin McNamara Show traveled to Goodspeed Opera House in East Haddam to celebrate their 10th annual Festival of New Musicals, a three-day blitz that welcomed new writers, composers, and performers to produce their latest creations for theater lovers from across the region. On the second day, Colin hosted a symposium with four writing teams to talk about their creative process. One brave team volunteered to be swept away to a basement room to actually create a song during the 45 minutes Colin spoke to the other three teams on stage. It was called the New Musical Challenge, and it involved some very specific criteria that you'll hear about in a minute. Every now and then, we'll take a break from Colin and his group to visit our team in the basement and take a first-hand peek on their creative process. And now, to Colin. So I'm going to introduce the panelists roughly in terms of their levels of stress or relaxation. So first of all, in the audience, if you feel pretty relaxed right now, let's see hands. How many of you feel pretty relaxed? Okay, most of you. And then how many of you are just total stress balls? Okay. No, you guys don't get to be that. Okay, okay so theoretically, these guys should be, were they not here, the most relaxed people anywhere in East Haddam right now. Alexander Sage Oyen and James Preston, because their musical played last night. They're done. I mean, they're not done in show business, but the Outlaws was so much fun last night. And so, so, so they're totally relaxed, and we thought, how could we make them be more stressed out? What could we do that would get them back in the mood of everybody else? And so now you understand. In just a second, we're going to do that. Now, probably the most stressed out people in this room right now are Michael Kuhn and Christopher Diamond. Uh, they're a show, The Noteworthy Life of Howard Barnes, will be... Um, here in this theater in just a few hours. So they're incredibly stressed. They probably won't talk at all during the panel. Uh, down, down the row from them, uh, Sam Carner and Derek Greger. They're currently in residence at Goodspeed, working on their new musical, Island Song. They're like medium stressed, and then not at all stressed. <laughs> Our Marcy Heisler and Zena Goldrich uh, at Goodspeed, they've been writers in residence. You know them already. From previous festival cabarets, they wrote the music and lyrics to Julie Andrews' The Great American Massacre at the Norma Terrace Theater. So, um, Dan, do, you, do we want to get the challenge going right now? Where did Dan even go? I'm right here. Oh, so do you have, like, the hats and stuff like that? Should we just do this and get them going? All right. So, all right, so you, you seem like an... I've never met you before. You seem like an honest person. So uh, pull one musical style out of... Okay. Broadway power ballad. Broadway power ballad. <laughs> <laughs> What's better, really? All right. Yeah. The character is next. Okay, hon. A grocery bag boy at Trader Joe's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I tried. I... Okay. <laughs> so. <laughs> Depending how long the line is. So let's bring down to Chris. Bring uh, to Christopher Diamond. He will draw. This is situation. God. Uh, so the, the grocery bag boy at Trader Joe's will be watching the first moon landing on television in a bar in Cleveland. 
said, yeah. And so there's a time travel element here because there was no Trader Joe's during the first moon landing. So, uh, These are, that's all right. And so we're all done. That's it, right? That's so simple. I can't... Do you want to just play it right now? I mean, it seems... It seems Challenge. Right. Go to the room. Go to the room. All right. It just seems very intuitive. All right. So you can go. You're just dis- you're dismissed. I guess. I oh, mean, thanks. So yeah. <laughs> All right. And so um, Dan will be monitoring their vital signs and stuff like that, and we'll we'll give you an update. And then roughly 45 minutes from now, they will come back with this incredibly polished song. All right, so we're going to talk a little bit about the creative process here and and about how these people do this amazing thing that they do, this amazing and, to our eyes, I think, very difficult thing that they do. So I wanted to begin, I wanted to tell you guys a story and have you react to it. It's a story about sort of a creative moment. So I don't even know whether the story is true or not, but it gets told that um, Richard Rodgers didn't want to write Oklahoma. He was not interested in it. Oscar Hammerstein came up to him at a party and slipped a piece of paper in his pocket and said... Don't look at it now. Take it out when you get home. And he'd been lobbying him to do this musical. And so when Richard Rodgers got home, he took out the slip of paper, and it said, all the single ladies, all the single ladies, get your hands up. No, that's not what it said. It did not say that. Um, It said, there's a bright golden haze on the meadow. And allegedly, Richard Rodgers then called right there on the spot, Oscar Hammerstein, and said, okay, I'll do it. So let's assume that's true. What would make him look at a few words like that and say, I can do that musical. Uh, You've got it. She's got it. I got it. I know exactly. Well, I can only speak from my own experience, but being the music person of our collaboration, that lyric is so beautifully expressive, so simple, so Mm. elegant, that in that one phrase, you could hear that that would be somebody I would be interested in writing with. I I think it comes down to that. Does, Does the word on the page leap out? Out to you and make you want to express yourself musically. I mean, for Chris and Michael, is there a t- tipping point for you guys where suddenly you know, oh, we can do this? I mean, maybe it's not as simple as one line from one song, but is there a moment where you think, all right, yeah, this is something we can throw all of our energies into? We usually spend a lot of time kicking around a lot of ideas that never, ever see the light of day, and so it takes a while before we find the nugget in there that makes an idea worth musicalizing. Is it always the same thing? Is it, uh, for example, we just took them some things out of a hat, you know, situation, style, character. Is it something like that? Like there's somebody that I, I, I can, there's a character I can believe in. I can write a musical about this person. I actually honestly think that some of the best musicals are written when one of or all of the writers have some kind of real connection to the story in some way. And also making sure that you're telling the same story as each other. So you can be interested in certain themes or certain aspects, but I would imagine that one of the, one of the things, in my, if that story is true, that would have sealed the deal would be Rogers thinking that he is on the same page as Hammerstein, that they, they could actually be telling the same story. So maybe Richard Rogers knew which words he could make sing, but it's not so easy for everyone else. Let's hear how Alex and James are dealing with the nugget we gave them. So what is a Broadway power ballad? Hard to say. Um, is that like... It's like I will never leave you from a sideshow. So that's like literally what the genre is. It's like sideshow songs. Right. <laughs> the worst. It'll run forever. Don't, don't use that. 
Are they kidding? Of course we're going to use that. And now, back to Colin. Let me ask you a different question, which is, this seems like such an uphill fight, you know, to, to do what you guys do. It seems like a very, very tall ladder without a lot of width on the rungs and not a lot of space at the top of the ladder. So what makes you do it? Why, why, why do something like this? You've got uh, creative abilities, but you could put them lots of places. I think if you can do anything else, you do do anything else. <laughs> I, you know, and it, it, it's funny because so many people do, do talk about the choices we make. It gets very exciting when it's not a choice. This kind of expression is very special because you really get to not only... I mean, I'm a book writer lyricist. I'm a words girl. But um, when you add music to the mix and you add a full environment of a story to the mix, it really creates a world. Well, I have to say that like seeing your work on stage with an orchestra, with lights, with costumes, it's like one of the best feelings ever. It's yeah. like un- indescribable. Yeah, the payoff is big. But I also think we all write when no one's looking. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that part of it is also creating a body of work and that the work leads to the jobs. I think one of the things they want to get out of this panel, too, is what it's like when you're writing when nobody is looking. And so we don't even know what these poor guys down there are going through right now. But I did, I was talking to, to some of our, our panelists earlier today uh, and asking the same question. I mean, I, I asked uh, Sam and Derek a little bit about this, but I'll, maybe I'll ask the other two songwriting teams up here. If somebody were in a room with the two of you or the two of you, and I assume there's a piano and there's... What would we see? I mean, what, is there a way that you can describe the, the moment? I mean, are you laughing, crying, fighting? What are you yes. doing? Yes. <laughs> there's a lot of coffee. But it's funny because we actually share an office in New York, so mm-hmm. we, we know what it's like to be in the room with each other. I think every writer does it differently, but it's all of that, I would say. You know, the finding of the idea, it doesn't always come at once. And I would say it's an interesting parallel between being brave and stupid and being afraid to be brave and stupid. And <laughs> sort of, you know, being willing to play. Are, you, are the two of you right there together at the piano writing all the time, or do you split off? And... We have our separate time. I mean, usually, I, I like to go off of lyrics first, because I think that the best melodies come from an existing lyric, generally. Mm. I would say that's about 85% of the time, because you can follow the natural line of speech. You, can, you have more control over which words you want to emphasize and how you want that all to work out. So... Sometimes Marcy will come up with something first, and then we get in the room together, and I like to be at the piano when she's there, because just having her there, just the chemistry of that... Do you sing to each other? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, when we write, I actually sing. So I take the lyric, I put it in front of me, and I just start singing. And, and she says, you don't need a verse, too. Yeah, and then I go, I need those there lines goes. there, whatever. My favorite thing is, like is actually when we sort of hit a wall on something that's not working and then we just noodle around on something and Marcy says something and we start here and we end up like totally in a different place and those are usually the best songs because they're so organic from what we do to get, it's such a product of both of our brains together at the same time and that's when it's the most creative I think. So, uh, Michael and Christopher, assuming that you could ever get any work done with all the noise coming from them, um, um, take us in the room with you guys. So is it the same? First of all, are you together at the piano? How does that work? And, and, and what are you saying to each other? We, we have to write this song about this moment in the play? I think most of what we're saying to 
each other is, is not appropriate to be repeated <laughs> in the public sphere. Um, but it, it's a lot of, we like to be together a lot of times early in the process of finding a song so that we're on the same page, we're telling the same story, and we've identified the song as the same dramatic beat uh, before we really dive into actually writing it. So we like to start with the book and find a moment that we think needs to be a song um, and we kind of hash out together what the song is going to do in terms of its, its dramatic movement and potentially what the, the hook of the song is. And then really depending on which, which of us has the stronger impulse for what that is, we'll, we'll oftentimes go and, and work apart for a while and then come back. So it becomes very collaborative, a lot of together and then apart and then back together and uh, ad nauseum until the song is completed. Right. And you guys, well, you've already answered this question with me a little bit. You, you mentioned a technological part of the answer, which I thought was very interesting. I don't know whether that's something you were about to go into or to like using oh, software to find where... Yeah. software. Yeah. I, sometimes I just... Could, when Sam has a, a lyric first, and we go back and forth about whether we start with a lyric or start with music, that's a question we get all the time. And a lot of times, different songs is different and parts of songs is different. But in the... In the occasions when he has a lyric first, it's so married to the rhythm that he hears. So it's just a waste of time for me to just take it on the page, and because he's always going to have, he's always going to be correcting me, <laughs> um, at least for a starting point. <laughs> then it can evolve from there, and we'll go back and forth, and it'll, we'll keep kind of massaging it. But in the beginning, because Sam is so. Um, He's a composer in his own right, and he understands the theory as well as I do and, and the computer notation we use. So I say, put it in. Just put, he'll take the whole lyric and put the rhythms in on one pitch. And I'll just sit back in the corner with the arrows. You guys know the arrows that go up and down on the finale? Just go up, down, up, down, up, down. And writing out rhythms is the most tedious thing. So I make Sam do a lot of it in certain situations when he has that. And he's, he's so in the moment that he's thinking, and I'm just kind of like, I can, I can take advantage of him. Just write it in, write it in, because you know what you want. You know what you want. And then he says, yeah. And then like later, he's like, oh, you jerk. You like made me notate all this while I was just you know, looking on YouTube. <laughs> Having said that, <laughs> that's not how all of the writing happens. That's how some of it happens. But then once, that, once he has that rhythm in, then my instincts will kick in and we'll have a conversation. A lot of times those rhythms will adjust. And I think that some of our arguments and I think a lot of the excitement uh, that we find in, in each other's work comes from alternately going back and forth on what, I might, what you might call architecture and design. Usually when Derek is thinking about the, the grand scheme of how the overall song is developing, I'll be interested in some detail and... Vice versa, when, when Derek is actually really focused on some specific chord progression or voicing, I'll be looking at overall flow. We tend to pretty seamlessly go back and forth and not actually be interested in the, in the same thing at the same time, which lends itself to speed. Too. I mean, yeah. there's like a little ballet that's starting to like develop where it's like I'll be able to read his mind and know when to stay out of his way and what to focus on. And sometimes it's just looking through the book scenes and looking for typos and looking for things that don't make sense because he's focused on such a global thing and I can get more local. And then, then when he's switching gears, then there's other things that I'm focusing on, like where can we, you know, reprise the lyric or something like that. Meanwhile, Alex and James are hard at work tucked away in the basement of Goodspeed which also serves as a copy center, lunchroom, and general gathering place. Needless to say, it's not quiet, but that didn't prevent our writers from focusing on their task. After finally coming to grips with the need to write a power ballad, Alex immediately started noodling around on the piano, while James asked someone to check the exact date Neil Armstrong landed on the moon. Let's listen into some more of their process. The idea is like, um, 
and 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 I'm just a bad boy ninja. We just gotta get very quickly to the joke. Yeah. yeah, because that's what's being expected. So we can't really move forward. And then I think that it's in the bridge, really, that it's like you start to build on the pun of like trading. Like yeah. if I could trade in my life. I'm just a trader named Joe. Yeah. Well, because it's gotta start I mean, with I'm just a bad boy named Joe for sure. sure. But then I think if you can kind of evolve it into trade in my, my um, life. So wait, I think I have it. Just give me a sec. And the steps he's taking now feel like giant leaps to me. Because I'm just a man stuck in his mediocrity. I'm just a bad boy ninja. Where life will take me, I don't know. But I gotta go and find it down. Calling instead of falling. This is a real secret to songwriting right here. What's uh, the source? Rhymezone.com. Yes. That's <laughs> the best one. You mean all we need is a thesaurus to write a good song? You're listening to a conversation taped in January at the Goodspeed Opera House in East Haddam. As part of the 10th Annual Festival of New Musicals, Colin interviewed four incredibly talented writing teams about their creative process. I'm Betsy Kaplan. We'll be right back after a short break that'll give me time to go find a thesaurus. Welcome back to Colin's Conversation in January with four talented writing teams who were part of the 10th Annual Festival of New Musicals at Goodspeed Opera House in East Haddam. Joining Colin on stage are Marcy Heisler and Zena Goldrich, Sam Carner and Derek Greger, Michael Kuman and Chris Diamond, and Alexander Sage Oyen and James Presson, who are currently in the basement taking the New Musical Challenge. You can read more about all of them on our website at wnpr.org. I'm Betsy Kaplan. Let's get back to Colin. I was down here years and years ago to interview Kander and Ebb, and they were telling me a story about somebody telling them, somebody like Hal Prince or Michael Price, I mean, somebody you can't really say no to, <laughs> saying, no, that, uh, I don't, we don't think that song works, go write another song. And I said, well, that must be horrible and discouraging. And they said, oh, no, that's when we're happiest. If somebody tells us to go write a song, we're really happy. That's, we like doing that. So are you having a good time? I, I can speak very... Honestly, I find it very difficult to rewrite a song. The show you're going to see tonight has a new song that we just wrote. We just instituted it on Wednesday. We're replacing a song that's been in the show for three years, and it was so hard to write the song differently because we had to create this new way into this thing. It also had to fit this specific moment in the dramatic structure. It also had to have the same lead in it. It had to have the same end place, but it had to do different work and do it differently to make the show better. So it, it was quite painful, I have to say, to write this new song. <laughs> but every now and then it does come easily. You know, I think it, it, it's really random how 
this one will come so easily and this one will be very difficult? I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I sometimes feel, I, first of all, we feel that way often. But on the flip side of it, for one of the projects we're exploring here, one of our assignments to, that we gave ourselves was to replace a song. We ended up replacing it by just cutting it and not really doing a direct replacement. Which was very fun. Yeah, which was nice. <laughs> we had a chance to go have dinner that night. Um, but it's, uh, sometimes I find it, like when we get deep into a project, it's so comforting to know there's this open space where you can just take all the insight that you have developed up to that point. Also, maybe you're getting better just in, in general, you know, as, as writers month by month. So then it's like there's this moment, it's like a gift to say, I can plop in anything I want here and that's doing all the things that I kind of wanted to accomplish. It's not always that way. I feel very similar to Michael often. But that's a feeling that I've kind of been thinking of. So if, if a wide open slot opened up in one of our shows and we could just go to town and just say, let's look at the whole picture, we have a gift to be able to write something from scratch. And that's not always the case. We all know that song that is completely and totally perfect and emotionally engaging. And a lot of that has to do, I think, with finding the right song moment. Because when you're, when you're songwriting, and you're songwriting within the confines of a musical, you are not only writing the song, you are looking for the relationships that sing. And when you happen upon something that sings so easily, it's really finding the, the keys to your story, I think. I think that's an important point, that if the, you know, if the conceit of the song is compelling, it's almost impossible to write a bad song. And I think that certainly the most painful moments for me are when I don't really know what I'm trying to do. I want to talk a little bit about the difference between writing four musicals and writing a freestanding song. And so one of the first things that comes up, obviously, is you're writing for a specific character to sing. And so I was talking to, to Alex and James about this earlier, that there's just certain things that... Jesse and Frank James aren't going to sing to each other. They're not going to sing It's Alarming How Charming I Feel. Um, you know, it, it, that might a be a... different musical. Yeah, sorry. It might be a great rhyme. It might be a great... You know, there, there's a million wonderful word combinations that Alex might come up with, but they just can't come out of the mouths of the James brothers. And so, can you guys talk a little bit about that, about sort of what particular challenges come out of that? One thing to think about is, is, I guess, inside voice versus outside voice, and to what extent the, the diction is going to change if someone is singing to someone versus if they're singing within their, their own head. Mm-hmm. You have to use yourself as a tool also, though, because if we all wrote a Paul Revere musical, for example, you know, something would be true to the character historically, and then there would be something that each of us would bring to the table, and I think that that's also part of the fun of it, is marrying the character to your specific voice. By the way, that is tomorrow morning's challenge. We're all coming back here. Oh. Everyone's writing a Paul Revere musical. Okay. Uh, well, you guys have done exercises. Weren't you telling me about something that involved, like, the subway? The what? A-Train oh, yeah, musicals, The yes. A-Train musical. What was, explain what that was. We did, um, we were part of something called the A-Train musicals, and in New York, there's the famous you must take the A train. Um, uh, and the, the challenge was to basically put together a 10-minute musical in 24 hours. And the writer's portion of this started at Far Rockaway, which is the end of the line. And you picked out um, headshots of actors. So you had your, your people who you were writing for. And you had the length of the train ride all the way uptown. To write the play. To the write play your 10-minute musical. 
<laughs> well, the play, and then they met the composers, and the composers had the I, other way to read the class. I just yes. remember being very stressed because <laughs> I, I do remember kind of hanging out on the A train with this huge keyboard, and we're sitting there literally just kind of people are looking. It's a very New York thing. Did anyone okay. give you money? Did anyone give you change? No, no but they're all like fascinated, like what on earth is going on here? Yeah. You know? They're like, am I in your musical? Like they really, the, we, the passengers really sort of loved it. I think. They, they were they were good. And at the end it. of the ride, we uh, we gave our stuff to the actors and they were rehearsed over the next morning and then less than 24 hours later we had a 10 minute musical (laughs) (laughs) and you said you thought actually that was a good exercise too sure keeps your pencil sharp I mean you're not really allowed to edit that much you Mm -hmm. really have to just kind of let it flow and and not get too don't don't polish too much Sam what were you going to say I was going to say a C train musical could have been 15 minutes (laughs) (laughs) Finding a character's voice can be hard, especially when you have to follow strict parameters like our writers downstairs. But maybe a little easier when you're under the crunch of time. Whether writers have an hour on Brooklyn's A train or 45 minutes in the basement of Goodspeed, it's sometimes best to just let it flow. Right? People pay too high a price. There you go. People pay too high a price. Oh, wait, wait. This is actually. Wait, wait. No. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. People pay too high a price for their chicken, beans, and rice. It's too big a sacrifice. We know that's true. That's right. Just let me, uh, I'll spitball when I get up there. Just, like, let me go. Okay. Off my leash. Uh-oh. Alex is off his leash, and they have only 25 minutes left to finish their creation. That's okay. We've been hearing from our writers that running free is good for their creativity. But there's also some mundane stuff that needs to be figured out. Like how the bridge fits with the chorus, how to find the best name for a song, and where to place each individual element. Meanwhile, Colin's upstairs talking to the panel about how theater music is different than pop music. Let's get back to them. Um, you know, obviously in the 30s, 40s, maybe even the 50s, popular music and theater music, that was the same music. This is something that Sam and Derek and I talked a little bit about, and James and Alex and I talked at some length about this, that then there came to be, I think, at whatever date you want to pick, this idea that there's theater music, right? And then it's not the music, that is popular music. And, and who knows how long that's been going on, although that would be the good name for a song. Um, <laughs> but I just I wonder now as you write, and, and maybe... Um, Michael and Christopher, you can begin with this. Whether you feel as though theater music is different from pop music, that you feel under some obligation or burden to produce a song that's different from what Elvis Costello or Tori Amos or whatever popular composer you, know, you admire would do. I, I don't feel that pressure. I actually feel like as a, I'm a composer, but I am foremost a storyteller in, in the world of uh, musical theater and so my goal is to bring the story to life in the best way possible we've certainly thought of trying to put a song in a show that could be excerptable but ultimately if you're doing something like that it's probably not the best thing for the show it's not the best moment for the show I, something that came up in my head while you were speaking is that I feel like even though like I don't necessarily write with that kind of contemporary sound I have grown up with that music so there's a certain certain contemporaryness I think about probably everything that we write you know you were in the kitchen of our house and Matchbox 20 was playing and I heard 3am was that you that you was put me. that on it's nice I like that <laughs> um, 
can I add on yeah, to yeah, it? Yeah, anybody I, can. Yeah. I feel similarly to Michael. I don't feel pressure to do that. And I, I'm kind of bummed out about some of the pressure that new musical theater writers put on themselves to try and sound like what's on the radio, and they often fail at it. Um, I think it's nice to just write what serves the show. Um, having said that, what serves one of our new shows is exactly that. So it's kind of like I'm having my cake and eating it too. I get, get a chance to, um, sonically, I'm really exploring what some music that I've grown up with sounds like. But then in terms of how do you construct songs for the musical, how do you construct the overall score, that's where those principles about what makes a great score or, or a, fu- a functioning score come into play it's not just a whole bunch of pop songs but in terms of the elect there's a lot of electronics my guitar player that i work with back in new york we spend hours just talking about his tone his sounds his pedals trying to create a sound that is very very specific but how it functions as a score there's a lot of vocal big lush vocal arrangements there's going to be a lot of strings there's going to be what I like to do is, is try and have the score function as its own character. I really like Sondheim for that reason. And, and we're always going to keep that principle in play, or try to. But, but stylistically, I'm really going in that pop direction, or I don't even know what to call it, but it's something that's all these bands that I love over the last like 20 years. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, I was just going to say that I also do not feel the pressure, because I just think they're completely different, and the pop world has sort of moved into a territory now where it's really mostly production, and they seem more interested in the the actual technical production of that rather than the actual songwriting. But the most important thing that I can take away from what really made pop songs popular, really, is is melody and a hook. Mm -hmm. So my job as a composer is to not only convey character and move the story along in a music way, but really it has to land and you have to kind of feel that song. So that aspect of it is actually very closely related to a pop song. I mean, I think when you have the young girl audience for Wicked learning those songs the way they would learn any pop song on the radio, I mean, you kind of have your answer there. You're listening to a conversation taped in January at the Goodspeed Opera House in East Haddam. As part of the 10th Annual Festival of New Musicals, Colin interviewed four up-and-coming writing teams. I'm Betsy Kaplan. We'll hear more, including our rogue Whole Foods Moon Landing musical, after this break. Welcome back to Colin's Conversation in January with four writing teams who were part of the 10th Annual Festival of New Musicals at Goodspeed Opera House in East Haddam. Joining Colin on stage are Marcy Heisler and Zena Goldrich, Sam Carner and Derek Greger, Michael Kuhlman and Chris Diamond, and Alexander Sage-Oyen and James Presson, who are currently in the basement taking the new musical challenge. You can read more about all of them on our website at wnpr.org. I'm Betsy Kaplan. Let's get back to Colin, who's currently looking for an update on whether Alex and James are withering under the pressure of their assignment. <laughs> Did you have an update? Do you want to, are they crying? Do they want drugs? What, what is happening? You took the words right out of my mouth. Oh. We're they crying. are in complete disarray. We are in disarray. And those and are their we, words. We quit they musical theater. But we'll be done in about 15. And that this is normal for us. This is quite normal. <laughs> this, this is every song. <laughs> Um, I want to go back in the songwriting room with all of you and and also just ask about, you know, what Harold Bloom calls the anxiety of influence. Um, All of you grew up, presumably, loving musical theater, having your own idolatries. And and so are there 
moments where you think, oh, that I just wrote something that sounds too much like... I do that all yeah. the time. Yeah. I'm like, is it, you know, th- there's a really a fine line between, is that something that already exists, or is that just something that feels so right to me that it feels like it already exists? Mm-hmm. And that's really frustrating because you're like, oh God, did I do anything? And I usually call up my sister or I ask Marge, I'm like, is that something? Is that something? I can't tell. So. Sam and Michael were both nodding furiously. <laughs> oh, I, I, just, I just really liked that. Yeah, that really is exactly the question that yeah. one's asked, asked himself. I, th- I do think it's in some ways harder for composers in the respect that I can just do a Google search if I have some phrase and see. Right. Yeah, no, see. there's no Google for melodies, no. which I wish there were. That'd be brilliant. <laughs> this, I have a friend in New York who advised me not to be too open about this part of my process, but there's, there's, um... <laughs> I can't wait to hear what you... Choose your words carefully. No, there, there are moments when the melodies just kind of magically come or whatever they do, but there's a real technical way in that I have where I can just take something or bits of a few different things that I like, that I didn't write, and I can just sculpt them into something else. So when I have that moment that I, I go to sleep and I think I've written something nice and then the moment of horror the next day when I find out that it's like I accidentally kind of really borrowed something maybe subconsciously. It's not that much of a freak out because I kind of like know how to like backtrack away from it and there's an essence in there. There's some nugget. There's some little interval. There's some sort of thing and I just keep twisting around. The more you kind of strip away from where that where it originated, the more you're left with something that's yours and it's so like unromantic to describe that which is what my friend told me not to but uh, <laughs> that's, that's one of the ways in that I have what for me is ideal as a, as a composer is to strike the perfect balance between what is familiar and what is surprising and that is something that it took me a long time to kind of be able to articulate that and when I'm approaching a, my songwriting I'm trying keep like it's like a little birdie on each shoulder to see which way I'm going and I can so I love to employ really poppy like simple chord progressions I love really familiar chord progressions that all the pop songs use and a lot of people kind of maybe kind of turn their nose up at some of those progressions but then within that what kind of rhythmic figures happen what kind of harmonies so that when you're listening you're hearing all this interesting stuff but it still feels like oh I get this and yeah go ahead I was going to say from a, from a words perspective at least one of my ways out of that is to try to be influenced by things that are not in musical theater, too. So, I mean, I'll pull things from John Donne and Keats, and, or idea, not, not lines, but just <laughs> ideas, you know. And so you take something that's from a very different context, put it into, put it into a musical theater context, and if it actually tells the story you Well, want that's to how I steal. It. I just listen to other yeah. stuff. I don't steal directly from musical theater. I steal from <laughs> things that nobody's listening I to. I had a teacher who always had a, who had a phrase, uh, when you borrow, pay back with interest. <laughs> Sometimes, the influence of other musicians quietly creeps into a composer's music. So while pop music may not be directly on the minds of Alex and James, a passerby looking for soda in the basement was drawn to the familiarity of their song. The creative process can benefit from lots of voices, some from unexpected places. Let's hear a little of our writer's exchange with this stranger. Good, that's what we want. We kind of want it to be like a pound. Well, we have to have it. I'm, I'm hearing like, you know, country comfort in my head. You yeah. Know, Captain Fantastic, that's my generation. And I'm like, yeah. Because I was upstairs and I'm like, where's it coming from? <laughs> Actually, that might be really funny if I go up there and say, we're really excited to 
um, premiered this brand new song from this brand new Elton John musical that we have been really blessed with. I've been arranging it for him. You, you know, and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's good. So, so if they don't like it, we can blame Elton blame John. Yes, <laughs> there you go. I love that. That's a great opening. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. See you tomorrow. Okay, maybe they could stand to suffer a little more anxiety of influence. Let's head back to the stage for our final few minutes. I, I want to do quickly a- ask a little bit about, I mean, obviously you're sitting here on the stage and you know, pe- you know all the people who've marched through here. Richard Rogers has been here and worked here. Comden and Green, Bach and Harnett, Kander and Ebb, they've all been here to the good speed and you're here now. And you're the heirs to their tradition. I, I'm wondering, I know it's a little daunting, but you are. You are the heirs to their tradition. But I'm also wondering, is, is, do you feel like you have the same job that they had, or is the job different now? In other words, is it, do, you have, do you wind up working in different ways, in different places? And, and obviously part of the problem is at the very top of the ladder, there's Broadway, which is eaten up with four or five Disney musicals, and you know, just not a lot of space for you guys. Do you feel like you have the same career as Comden and Green, or do you feel as though it just turned into a different kind of a career? One thing that's really exciting, I mean, Sam and I are, you know, we're working towards having, you know, we'd love to have a Broadway musical, we'd love to have broad, like a movie musical, we'd love to have all those things, and hopefully those things will be in the cards for us. But fundamentally, we want our work to be heard. We right. want to experience that. And it's really magical right now that, that new writers have this form. It's really because of YouTube, I think. Mm-hmm. There's everything kind of changed. And, and all these writers up here, like, they're famous. I mean, like, Kuman and Diamond are everywhere. We do coachings, and then I look through people's books when Sam is talking about something. And I always see, like, the names of these new writers. Everybody's always being performed in cabarets all over the world. There's, like, all these, like, high school and college kids who are obsessed with all the new writers. So it's not just about the people who are writing Wicked. And that's great that there's that tier. But when there's that huge barrier to getting a Broadway show and the $14 million and all that, the fact that in any given night, I mean, I would, I would bet that you guys have a song happening somewhere tonight other than all the songs in your show here, that some cabaret, they're doing it indefinitely for you guys too, like somewhere in the world. It's almost like you have a career, a legitimate career, because there's an existence. You're making a little bit of money and people are doing your stuff regularly. And that, that was a game changer, I think, for our industry, is that just because of YouTube and because of people being able to have access to the new writers. Hey, maybe you can say a little bit more about that. I, I wouldn't, as I was trying to go to school on you guys for this panel, I realized that YouTube was a game changer, that I could find your music, and you find the Lisa Brescia version of somebody's song, and she's singing it at... Singing at a Le Poisson Rouge, and and that's like a thing that didn't exist a few years ago. Oh, yeah. So I mean, maybe you can say a little bit more about that. It obviously is a big thing that your music is up on YouTube, and maybe X thousand people will be doing something with it. I mean, it's a huge thing. We like to spend a lot of time kind of shaking our fists at the economics of Broadway and how difficult it is nowadays, and lament, you know, for for the good old days when the industry was simpler or different, at least. And it's easy to lose sight of the fact that we have a number of tools at our disposal that weren't around 15, 20 years ago. You know, I mean, we've had a number of great opportunities that have, that have come up, including this one right here, that basically came about because we were able to get our, our work out there and find an audience in a way that wasn't possible when I was in high school. 
And not only that, but there are these opportunities, theaters, these nonprofits that are really kind of picking up the slack and finding that space for the musicals that are smaller, that are maybe not necessarily intended for Broadway, and developing them in environments like this and, and, and giving opportunities to writers to come and, and do the work that they want to do. Alex and James have just overcome the final obstacle of naming their song, the crowning jewel of their work. Let's share in the final moment when they realize they've got it. change just based on our conversation. If you could work in the phrase, one if by land, two if by sea, into Paul the Revere. song, that would be really helpful. A little late for that. <laughs> do you want us to just do it? To just I, set I it want up? you to do what, whatever you feel. I think, okay. yeah, just hit it. Hit it. Great. Okay, um, hit us with it. This is a song uh, from a musical that we've been working on with Elton John. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm writing the lyrics, James is writing the book, uh, Elton, our good friend, is writing the music, and um, the, the show is called The Constant Grocer, and um, it's, kind of, it's a very serious show. Um, it's really like, it's like a think piece. Yeah. Uh, American like a economics. Show. Yeah. And uh, just the struggle that we all face. Mm-hmm. Elton's really into it. Anyway, yeah, he just we, we called him. He just him. texted, "Good luck." Yeah, we we called him and asked him, and he said it would be okay if we played a song. So, um, this is uh, Act One, Scene Two, and uh, it's our character, our our protagonist's "I Want" song. So the song is called "So Much More." Who can comprehend the gravity of this little life of mine? I see a man named Neil who is hopping for his life. Who knows if he will ever make it home to his wife? The steps he's taking now feel like giant leaps to me. Because I am just a man stuck in my mediocrity. I'm just a bad boy named Joe. Where life will take me, I don't know. But I've gotta go and find my calling. Cause there's worlds to explore. I'm gonna trade this life. So much more People pay too high a price For their chicken, beans, and rice It's too great a sacrifice To ignore So here's what I'm gonna do Instead of checking 
There's a mic there, right? Yeah, stay where there's a mic. That's my advice. All right, so that's the perfect segue into the Q&A portion of our audience, so, uh, of our, of our uh, presentation. So uh, let's do that. Anybody? Yep. Okay. For lack of a better term, um, and to spice things up, how monogamous are these relationships? Or, in a, or when they have one of these colonies, is there, you know, would you like to, so I'd like to play his music. I'd like to write with her. Or keys in a bowl kind of party. You know, um, is, is, is it just always the two of you, or as swingers? Long, right? Are there great swingers? question. You're talking about as, work? As long as Derek yes, lets work. Me, yes, oh. work. Use, yes, work. As long as Derek lets me watch. <laughs> Bob Carroll to announce. Right? Yeah, that's right. Swinging. Um, well, I can speak for Marcy. Marcy and I have been writing for 21 years. 21, 21 years, years yeah. which is fairly monogamous as it goes in this business. Yeah. There are occasions when Marcy will write a song with somebody else here and there, and sometimes I'll just do something on my Set own. Set Shakespearean sonnet. Yeah, <laughs> Shakespeare's you know, a good, just, better collaborator. Just because. But no, yeah, I mean, um, you know, we're basically our main squeeze. And, right. Um, I, I'm sure that, you know, it's like any marriage. You, you, you're always curious about other people and such. But... <laughs> <laughs> But ultimately, you know. No, I mean, we, we on occasion we will work with others, but we we discuss it with each other. We we answer to each other. Yeah, we're we're kind of the same way, you know. We we have an open an open marriage, as it were. <laughs> uh, but but really, I mean, that's more theoretical than anything, because when you do work with somebody so closely and you find someone that you have that kind of connection with, you know, collaboration is is not easy. It's it's very much like a marriage, you know, and so it's very rare to find someone that you connect with and that you find that voice with. And so when you do, you know, you want to pour all your energy into that and, and work as much as you can and create as much as you can. 
Uh, Colin, the other day you were talking about Into the Woods and the fact that how unusual it was to be nominated. Where do you guys see mainstream theater going? Yeah, I think live theater has been around as long as human beings have and, and musical storytelling has been around just as long. So no matter what happens on Broadway, there are going to be people out there who, who want to tell stories yeah. dramatically and using music, and there are going to be audiences that enjoy that, and they're going to find it in one form or another. So it's easy to get caught up in the gloom and doom of, of what you see happening on Broadway, but there's a lot of really, really exciting work out there, and there are a lot of people who are hungry for that. So I think the future is really bright for, for musical theater. It's a good thing. <laughs> uh, I'm going to end it there, actually, except that just maybe build on what she just said, which is, you know, the gentleman over here um, just mentioned uh, Into the Woods, the movie. And I, I remember I, when it came out, I was sitting in a pretty packed theater watching this movie, and I love the musical, and I most of us do, and most of us also know the points in the musical that we love the most and the things that happen uh, as we do in any musical. And I was aware of the fact that the movie audience kind of wasn't laughing, gasping, reacting exactly the way that I would have expected them to. And I realized there's a thing that happens when we all get into a room like this one, and that there's lot when there's live people on stage, and then these incredibly creative people have set up this journey that we're all going to go on together, and it kind of goes back to one of Michael's first comments, just you know what the payoff is here, um, and and it really is. I just noticed it. As good as that movie is, as good as that cast is, it couldn't make the thing happen that I think we're all here for today. So I want to thank all these incredible, these uh, eight wonderfully creative uh, people here. And thank you. Thanks to our friends at Goodspeed Opera House in East Haddam for inviting us to their 10th annual Festival of New Musicals, including the four talented writing teams here to stage their latest productions, Marcy Heisler and Zena Goldrich, Sam Carner and Derek Greger, Michael Kuman and Chris Diamond, and Alexander Sage Oyen and James Presson. You can read more about all of them on our website at WNPR.org. I'm Betsy Kaplan, who produced this show with the help of executive producer Katie Talarski. Thanks also to Jay Hilton, sound designer at Goodspeed, who recorded and mastered today's audio. I hope you can join us again tomorrow on The Colin McEnroe Show. Now, feel like giant leaps to me Because I am just a